Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop wraps up our series on theology of the body and the three states of man. So far, he's talked about original man and historical man. This week, it's eschatological man, or our future destiny. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop, who is going to continue a part three of our discussion of theology of the body. We did part one on original man. Part two was historical man. We're going to continue historical man here for a little bit, and then maybe in the second half of this, get into eschatological man as well. Can you do a real quick summary of of where we've been with original man and, and historical man so far? Sure. Original man, of course, we're looking at the human person prior to the fall as God created us. We talked about the law of the gift. We talked about the nuptial meaning of the body and how, according to God's plan and the way he created us out of love, we are created to be a communion of persons in which there is a mutual self-giving in love. Man and woman were naked without shame. That's paradise, okay? Mm All that became corrupted by the fall, by the entrance of sin into the world, where man rebelled against God, the creator, basically rejecting the gift. And then they became naked with shame, Mm -hmm. which shows the effect. And the, the whole notion of concupiscence, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, this pride of life, all of that came and... Therefore, there's this struggle within the heart of every person. There's this struggle between, obviously, between good and evil, between love and lust. Mm -hmm. Now, the good news is that uh, Christ has redeemed us by his blood. So he came to restore us to God's friendship and to the right relationship among ourselves and between each other. And therefore... There's a rejection of those masters of suspicion like Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx who reduce the human person to one of those three areas of lust. Mm -hmm. And that has wreaked terrible results in recent modern history. And I think what's so beautiful is John Paul gives us the total vision of the human person, not this reductive vision. And he talks about true freedom, how Christ has come and set us free. And he gives us the grace in this battle between love and lust that's within each of us to be able to live a life that is truly free, the life in which we, which we can call the life according to the Spirit, because he gave us the Holy Spirit who dwells within our hearts. And of course, the grace of the sacraments, a life of prayer, etc., help us to live according to the Spirit, lives of, of true freedom that leads to eternal life. Of course, we have the freedom to live a different way, a life according to the flesh, which is one which is selfish and produces all kinds of of bad works, bad actions that St. Paul lists in his letter to the Galatians. Yeah, so that's by way of summary. I didn't, wasn't able, we didn't have enough time in the last segment to finish historical man. But I think this, this last part is important because 
The fruit of life, according to the Spirit, is purity. Okay. Which sounds like, whatever you say, purity, it sounds like a goal that we can't accomplish on this side of heaven. Right. You know, so I, I would have thought that that becomes part of eschatological man. This is after death, mm -hmm. we experience purity. So what, how does purity relate to historical man? It has to today? do with love, really, because okay. it's inseparable. Authentic love and purity are inseparable. You see, purity is a requirement of love, according hmm. to John Paul. It is the dimension of its interior truth in man's heart. So, I mean, remember the beatitude of Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, mm. for they shall see God. If you look at, okay, what is purity? You can look at it in a generic sense. It's really everything that is morally p good is pure, okay? And everything that's morally bad is impure, basically. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it more specifically, it can be equated with the virtue of chastity. And if you notice in his list of works of the flesh, St. Paul in his letter to the Galatians lists the first three works of the flesh are sin of works of the flesh are sins against the a chastity, fornication, impurity, and licentiousness. But a, another passage in St. Paul, which I think is even more illuminating for us, is in his first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter four, verses three to five. By the way, this is John Paul writing, he says, he quotes this passage of St. Paul, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like heathens who do not know God. So resisting the passion of lust, that's purity. The virtue of temperance, you know, it's one of the four cardinal virtues is temperance, the capacity to control the desires of our sensitive appetite. That's all part of purity, okay, temperance. But the positive function of purity is seen in when, when St. Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to control our own body in holiness and honor. He writes that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like heathens who do not know God. So here we're talking about self-mastery. If we want to attain our dignity as persons, it's essential that we have self-mastery, that we're aware of ourselves, we possess ourselves, that we can then live the law of the gift that's inscribed in our nature and give ourselves out away out of love. Mm -hmm. And there's a reward for this. Remember this beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So yeah, it's a daily struggle to live this virtue of purity, but, but think of the, the reward. And, and John Paul says it's not just seeing God in heaven, but even now we can see according to God when we accept others as natures, as neighbors, hmm. 
and we see each other's bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, we're seeing God. Right. So purity possesses a twofold dimension. First of all, it's a moral virtue. John Paul speaks of it as a subjective capacity we are able to acquire through constant human effort. But there's the other part of it is it's also a gift of the Holy Spirit. And it shows that we're living a life according to the Spirit. And closely linked to this is the gift of piety, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of piety, which really serves purity because it makes us sensitive to the fact of our dignity. Remember, St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You are not your own. So we have a respect for others as human persons because the Holy Spirit dwells within that other person. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the gift of piety. So our motives for living purity, okay, respect for the other and for ourselves as human persons, but also because the Holy Spirit dwells within each one of us, because God is truly present in the hidden depths of every person who's living in the state of grace. Hmm. So only one whose heart is pure is able to perceive how the nuptial meaning of the body enables us to give ourselves freely, not only to other people, but to God dwelling within us. So this is great dignity that we acquire through the virtue and gift of purity. God is glorified in our bodies, and we're able to catch a glimpse of his own eternal glory, beauty reflected within us. So again, this controlling one's body in holiness and honor, and together with the gift of piety, as the fruit of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the temple of the body, purity brings about in the body such a fullness of dignity and in interpersonal relations that God himself is therefore glorified. Hmm. So our, our body has this innate dignity because of our personal human spirit. We're personal subjects. It's an essential aspect of our personal identity. It's not just an object that we possess. And in a sense, we can say we are our body, according to John Paul. And Jesus has conferred a new and much higher dignity upon the human body because he took on a human body. Mm -hmm. He made it the body of the God-man. So he's elevated in a supernatural way the body of every person. And through his, the power of his redemption, he enables every person's body to become a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us by grace. And St. Paul explains why purity acquires a new force and must be pursued with greater vigor thanks to the redemption. So he writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 to 20, shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? 
You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So through the redemption, Jesus has given each one of us back to ourselves in a new way with a transcendent dignity and a greater freedom, the freedom of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. This gets into the whole way we live, gets into ethics, this call of Jesus to purity of heart in the Sermon on the Mount. His words are really the norm for our conduct that we're called to live up to, to be pure, not just in our actions, but in our hearts. They reveal that through the redemption, we have become new persons. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to overcome the threefold lust within us, and we're able to fulfill that command, to be pure of heart. Now, does this mean that we're just, it's a return to our original innocence? Not really. Yeah. Because we're still going to have this tendency to sin within us. Mm-hmm. Okay? We have grace, but we're not, but we can, and with God's grace, we can rise above the concupiscence of the flesh, but, and we have this new freedom, but it's something that doesn't destroy this tendency to sin, doesn't destroy it completely in this life, okay? Uh-huh. In this life. We will talk about eschatological man. So we're offered this, but that doesn't mean that we, we ever arrive at perfect purity of heart. So, you know, we have this hereditary sinfulness. Even though we can live and obey and grow in this purity, we, and some have reached, you know, pretty great heights in this, the saints. Mm-hmm. But the only one who reached it perfectly of human persons is Mary. Right. You know, we speak of the purity of Mary. Now, what's the fruit of this purity in the Holy Spirit? It's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is, is joy. Hmm. Joy, it's Beautiful if you ever come across someone who you see them, this, the Holy Spirit really at work in them. And we see that they have this joy. I mean, I saw it in John Paul when I met him. I saw it in Mother Teresa when I met her. There's mm-hmm. something like radiant about them. Yeah. And that's really the life of the saints. And we could say even people who aren't canonized saints where we've seen this kind of of a life. And that's, I think, pretty much covers historical man. And I hope it's clear. I don't know. Again, I'm trying to, and I'm using an author, a book that I like called The Splendor of Love. Okay. Trying to remember the name of the author. It's a priest. Because I really like his summary of John Paul's Theology of the Body. I've also read Christopher West's Theology of the Body Explained and, and others as well. But I like this book. It seems to be a little more, a little clearer for, for the average person, I think. But again, this is just a summary. I mean, we could do a whole hour on just one of his, right. John Paul's talks. Yeah. So it's kind of difficult to give a review like this, but... Hopefully people are, I mean, maybe it'll stir people to want to read more on their own. And the book you mentioned, The Splendor of Love, I believe is Father Walter Shue? Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. 
So people might want to check that out. I'm pretty sure that's it, correct. I, I like that that it ends with you know redemption, purity, and joy. And yeah, you know, I think a lot of times people think of Christianity as dwelling on the the shame and the fall and sin and kind of the the sad reality of our world and not not finish the sentence with the the hope and the redemption and right. and the joy. Well, it's interesting because when you think about it, the Catholic teaching is so beautiful in the way John Paul expresses it that really what people should be turned off from is the negative reduction of man right. that you find in Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. And yet, they have had a, a major impact right. on people's way of thinking in the last two centuries. I would say that popular culture has a reductive vision of man. Huh. The church has this fuller, transcendent vision of the human person. Well, we still have more to talk about, but first, if you have questions for Bishop, you can text the Holy Cross College text line with a question, a topic, a suggestion, 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll talk about Eschatological Man, part three of this trilogy on Theology of the Body, coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives with products, services, and education. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it back to our members. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Ben talking about Theology of the Body. This is our our third episode, and we're just now getting into the third part of the, the triptych, I guess. They, they the say, three of, states of man. So we did original man and historical man and now eschatological man, which you described as post-death. Right. right? So we ended with how historical man has been redeemed by Christ at the price of his own blood mm-hmm. upon the cross, that really his uh, redemption recreates us and a new life according to the Holy Spirit by which we can conquer the way of the flesh and attain you know, true freedom. So I love the fact of this, the total vision of the human person that John Paul gives us looking at the origins of mankind, but then our present human condition. But we can't end there. There's a third aspect about who we are as persons, and that's our future destiny. Hmm. Because this world is not our eternal destiny. The kingdom of God is. Mm -hmm. So Christ has, the redemption has opened for us the gates of heaven. And we'll only have complete happiness and fulfillment when we're in union with God with the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. We will no longer have this opposition within our heart between the spirit and the flesh. 
we will possess ourselves to the full. So the third cycle of John Paul's audiences on the theology of the body contemplates what he what we call eschatological man, mm-hmm. the fulfillment of our eternal destiny with God. By the way, I shouldn't say after death. It, it's after the resurrection of the bodies. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, of course, there's a the reflections by John Paul on this are really centered on again one verse from the Gospel of Matthew. So it's amazing how he'll take one verse out of scripture and that becomes like <laughs> nine talks on one right. verse, you know. And the sentence that he uses here is Matthew chapter 22 verse 30. In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. So the resurrection of each one of us after our death is founded entirely upon Christ's resurrection. And we read about this, especially in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, where St. Paul really penetrates into the meaning of the resurrection, pondering what Christ has done for us. Now, there's a twofold meaning in the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, it reveals who God is. He's a God of life, a God who is faithful to his promises. Secondly, it confirms everything that Jesus taught, all that he said and did. It shows that, well, I'll quote John Paul here, the resurrection of Christ is the last and the fullest word of the self-revelation of the living God as not the God of the dead, but of the living. It is the last and fullest confirmation of the truth about God. And the second fundamental meaning of Christ's resurrection is that it achieves our victory over sin and death. So we can all look forward in hope to our own resurrection by participating in Christ's death and resurrection. John Paul writes, and I quote, Furthermore, the resurrection is the reply of the God of life to the historical inevitability of death to which man was subjected from the moment of breaking the first covenant and which, together with sin, entered his history. So John Paul proclaims, and I quote, the resurrection constitutes the definitive accomplishment of the redemption of the body. By redeeming our body, the resurrection opens to us the gates of heaven. Of course, we can ask, well, what is this? final redemption of our body. What uh-huh. what does heaven look like? What's it going to be like? And, you know, St. Paul was once granted an experience of heaven. If you remember, he only could describe it. He does this in his first letter to the Corinthians. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Hmm. Now, unfortunately, we have caricatures of heaven. You know, people reclining on clouds or playing harps forever. Uh And that gives heaven a bad name. I mean, who looks forward to that? Yeah. But Jesus never speaks about heaven that way Uh in the Gospels. What does he describe heaven as? A banquet, Hmm. a wedding feast. That's much more attractive to me than laying on a cloud or playing a harp. Uh (laughs) So we're talking about deep joy and fulfillment 
this, this happiness of being immersed forever in God's love. And you might think, okay, does that mean everything changes? Well, after the resurrection of the body, we'll retain our own personal human identity. As John Paul says, in the psychosomatic unity of body and soul. Because think about it. Even Jesus, after his resurrection, continued to possess his human body. The five wounds are still visible, right. but they're glorified. Mm-hmm. So there's this union of our body and soul in heaven. It's not just our souls. This is what, uh, and I'll quote John Paul here, the truth about the resurrection clearly affirmed, in fact, that the eschatological perfection and happiness of man cannot be understood as a state of the soul alone. Separated, according to Plato, liberated from the body, but it must be understood as the state of man definitively and perfectly integrated through such a union of the soul and the body, which qualifies and definitively ensures this perfect integrity. You know, I think a lot of people kind of have Plato's idea of at the end of life, the heaven is, you know, our soul released from our body. That's not Christian. Hmm. You know, the Christian view is not Plato on this. Uh, We believe in the resurrection of the body, that our present material body will be perfected, will be glorified. It's interesting because throughout life we see a diminishment of our bodies. You know, I know now at the age of 64, I can't do things that I did when I was 21. I don't have the same. Now, I need to get better in shape and everything. I know that. But, you know, it's just a natural part of life. Our, sure. our material body weakens. But our spirits can grow in beauty and virtue as we get older. So we, in a sense, our material bodies get f- spent physically, but at the same time, the life of our soul can increase. I see that in a lot of elderly people. Sure. But when we think about bodily death, I think it can be viewed as a new birth to a radically new way of life in eternity. Think about an unborn baby. In order to be born, in order to enter into the fullness of earthly life, the baby needs to be born. Go beyond that embryonic existence within the womb. And this is kind of like, it's an analogy, it's not perfect, but it's kind of like us going into a new way of life in eternity. The question, of course, people have is, well, does our body just prepare our souls for eternal life and then disintegrate into the earth? Well, there's a problem here. As human persons, we are created in the unity of body and soul. Our soul, which is spiritual and immortal, is the principle of unity of the human body, of the human being. We exist as persons, as a whole, body and soul. So our soul is of its very nature ordered to a body and is the form of the body. So our body too has been promised the resurrection and will share in the glory of eternal life in heaven. Body and soul are inseparable in the person, in the willing agent, 
And in the deliberate act, John Paul says, they stand or fall together. So our soul will be reunited to our risen, glorified body in heaven. Now, we'll still remain male or female, by the way, because hmm. that's how we were created by God. So when Jesus says they neither marry nor are given in marriage, it doesn't mean that we will lose our masculine or feminine peculiarity. Hmm. But there will be differences. The fact is marriage will no longer exist. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, this may seem paradoxical. Okay, we're going to remain male or female, but we're not going to be married. But this is a paradox. It shows that the meaning of being a man or a woman goes beyond marriage Mm -hmm. and beyond procreation. So there's going to be this transformation. Remember, Jesus says in the book of Revelation, behold, I make all things new. So there's this reestablishment of human life in its integrity by means of the union of the body and soul, but a completely new state of human life. So what does this entail? Jesus says they are like angels in heaven. So we're talking about the spiritualization of the body. This doesn't mean we become angels. We don't become pure spirits. Right. You know, I always resist when so oh, he's now an angel in heaven. No, mm-hmm. we never become angels. We become like angels, okay? <laughs> because otherwise, resurrection of the body would be meaningless. So we'll keep our, our human nature in the unity of body and soul. But this, there's this spiritualization of the body. Remember we were talking about life according to the spirit versus life according to the flesh? Well, now we have the definitive triumph of life according to the spirit. There's this harmony between the spiritual and the physical in us. We'll no longer have that interior battle. There's going to be this perfect unity and harmony of our bodies with our spirits. So we won't have this opposition within us. The spirit will now dominate the body. It will fully permeate the body and So this is really amazing to try to think about. We can speak of it also as the divinization of the body because of our direct participation in the inner life of God himself. So we have this, what John Paul says, is a penetration and permeation of what is essentially human by what is essentially divine will then reach its peak so that the life of the human spirit will arrive at such fullness which previously had been absolutely inaccessible to it. St. Paul describes this, by the way, as seeing God face to face. In heaven, we'll experience the joy of living in a personal, loving communion with God. We'll be able to contemplate the communion of love between the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. We'll be able to give ourselves completely to God with no hindrance of sin, no passions, egotism, fears, no attachments, no lack of generosity. There's this complete and absolute freedom of the gift to be able to, to contemplate God. You know, in, in, in the Gospels, Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, a promise, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. 
Truly I say to you, he will gird himself and have them sit at table, and he will come and serve them. So he's really, this is God's self-communication to us. This is the most personal self-giving by God in his very divinity to man. So this is perfect happiness. Mm -hmm. The experience of God's self-giving to us. This is superior to any experience that we have on earthly life. You know, we have these kind of these beautiful experiences in life, you know, an act of kindness that we receive or moments of grace while we're praying or experiencing the beauty of creation. All these are experience of, of God's goodness, but they're just glimpses of how God will love us in heaven. We're talking about utter fullness forever, every moment. This perfect communion with the Trinity. But it also is complete unity with all redeemed men and women, what we call the communion of saints. We'll all be united through our communion with God. This is so much connected with our faith in the resurrection of the dead. And we'll be reunited with our loved ones who have gone before us. Just think of the joy and gratitude when we encounter our deceased loved ones, or even people who maybe have been praying for us and we didn't know it. What are we going to say when we first meet Mary? You know, hmm. I think about, I, I can't wait, I say this different times, I can't wait to meet St. John, yeah. the apostle whose gospel and, and letters have meant so much to me. What are you going to say when you meet St. Francis of Assisi or Thomas Aquinas? This intimate communion with God and with all the saints. That's our complete fulfillment, our perfection as human subjects. And we're not absorbed. We don't lose our personal identity. Think about Eastern mysticism. You know, a lot of people today are, are attracted to Eastern mysticism. What's that about? It's about losing one's personal identity. Well, that's not Christianity. Hmm. We're talking about an experience of love that leads us to discover our own identity to the full. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've been created for. That's what we've been redeemed for. The nuptial meaning of the body will be completely fulfilled. There'll be no marriage in heaven because what we have in heaven is that nuptial significance of the body that reveals our call to live in a communion of persons, we will enter into this supreme and definitive communion with the three persons of the Blessed Trinity immediately sharing their life in heaven. Well, marriage between a man and a woman is a, is a temporal expression of this within history. It's kind of a sign of the definitive wedding feast, the, the nuptial union of heaven. Because in heaven, each of us will be a bride of Christ, the bridegroom, enjoying the eternal happiness of giving ourselves to him in response to God's gift of himself to us. So what is marriage and procreation? That's in the dimension of history. We're going now to the eschatological state. So it is kind of paradoxical that the definitive realization of the nuptial meaning of the body is not in earthly marriage, but in virginity. The body's virginity will be fully expressed in heaven because the only adequate response to God's outpouring of love 
will be to give ourselves entirely to Him in all that we are as personal subjects. And as we give ourselves entirely to God, we'll also be giving ourselves to all others in Him, not just to one man or one woman. So the communion of saints, that's the definitive marriage between Christ and His bride, the church. Mm. So we can see then, I won't get into this, the beauty of the call to celibacy and the call to virginity. Because those who are consecrated to Christ through poverty, chastity, and obedience are making present on earth in anticipation that virginal yet spousal union with God that each person will live for all eternity in heaven. Well, I think this has been very helpful. I, I've learned a lot about theology of the body in the past, but haven't had this in-depth of a deep dive into those three aspects of man. So I think that's that's helpful. I feel like I maybe jumped ahead <laughs> in some ways to some of the application of it, but didn't have that background. So thanks for walking through that yeah. with us. And, and the other three cycles that John Paul does are celibacy mm-hmm. for the kingdom, sacramentality of marriage, and love and fruitfulness. But I think, though, that what we've talked about in the first three cycles are really, that's the, that's the most important. And then applying it to a life of celibacy, life as a sacrament of marriage, and then procreation, love and fruitfulness, getting into issues like contraception and all that. So you really can't get into those things without this foundation. Mm-hmm. This foundation that John Paul gives then has all these other repercussions in our vocations. Uh, but I think we've done enough on this topic yeah. at this point. Well, and encourage people to continue to dive into it. Of course, there's the the document itself, the theology of the body, but also like there's introduction to theology of the body. There's theology of the body for beginners and all kinds of different books that break it down. There's, you mentioned at the beginning of all of this, I think the, uh, the Institute Theology of the Body Institute, and they do training. Yeah, Philadelphia. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting you talk about a document. I don't have a book with all 129 talks, but there is. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I have I have books on parts of it, but I don't have a book that has all 129 talks in it. I've got to get that. Yeah, it's – I'm just looking up real quick here. Man and woman, he created them, a theology of the – oh, this is a theology of the body. But it says John Paul II – we could check that out, see if it has all 129 talks. By the way, there were some talks that were just after John Paul's death, just a few years ago, that have been published that he didn't give, but that huh. he had written. I think there's about 10 or 12 of them that I did look at. It's been a while, though. I'd have to get them out. But I don't know why he didn't give them publicly, but that he had written, too. It has to do, with, I think, with Tobias and... Sarah and all that in the Testament. So yeah. anyhow, he had more written than than he actually published. Yeah, this is 768 pages. That sounds about right. Yeah, it has almost 400 reviews, all five star. <laughs> okay, who publishes it, does it say? Uh, Pauline. Oh, books. Pauline Press. Yep. I've got to get that. I bet that costs a little bit. $30. Really? Yeah. That's not bad. It must be paperback. Yes, paperback. $18 if you get the, the E book version. Okay. But, all right. Well, thank you again, Bishop, for walking us through this. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. 
Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.